we've seen through the Gospel of Luke, as you see through all the Gospels, you, you notice that Jesus performs a lot of miracles. And one of the main reasons that Jesus does this, that he does the supernatural, that he does what only God could do, is to demonstrate just that, that he was God. Uh, he wants people, as they see this miraculous move that he's able to do, to recognize who he is, to see that he's God, to see that he was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But, you know, not everyone who saw Jesus' miracles responded that way. They saw what he did, they saw the supernatural, but not everyone responded by saying, you're God, you're the Messiah, we want to follow you. Here in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is going to perform another amazing miracle, but Luke records for us three responses to this miracle. Three responses that we see that are very familiar, very common today of how people respond to what God does in their life or what God does in front of them, some miraculous move of God. And the first response is going to be a very positive response, but the other two responses are negative responses. And, and sadly, I think in our world today, we see more negative responses to Jesus than we see positive responses. And so I think there's a lot for us to learn. But, you know, Jesus is going to respond to those who have a negative response to him. He's going to help them see the foolishness of some of their statements and some of their arguments against him. And so I think there's a lot for us to learn as we recognize that, you know what, we're in a world where, you know, as we proclaim Christ, these are responses that we hear, that we receive. And I think it's good to see how Jesus deals with them, hopefully to help us in our dealings with them as well. So let's start with seeing the miracle that Jesus does and the responses that he has because of it. Luke Chapter 11, we left off, starting in verse 14, it says this. And as he was casting out a demon, it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demon by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. Here Jesus does what we've seen him do many times before. He casts a demon out of a demon-possessed Man, But Luke gives us some information here that's a little unique, that's a little different than what we've seen before. This man who was demon-possessed was mute. Now you might think, well, who cares if he was mute? What does that have to do with anything? Well, it has a lot to do with it because the Jews of Jesus' day also had people that they considered exorcists who would go and cast demons out of individuals. But they believed at that time that the only way that you could cast a demon out of someone was if you got that person who was demon-possessed to say the demon's name. Remember when Jesus encounters that demon-possessed man, he says, what's your name? The guy says, legion. That was their common thing. What's your name? And the demon would respond with giving the name. And once the demon gave the name and their thoughts back and then, that's when and only when you could cast the demon out of someone. So they believed that if someone was mute and was demon-possessed, that there was no way to cast the demon out of them because there was no way for the demon to speak through that individual and tell you their name. Now, obviously, that's not the case, but that was the superstition of their day. That's what they believed. And so this mute man is demon-possessed, and Jesus goes, and he casts out the demon, and then this mute man all of a sudden starts to speak. And people are marveling. Not so much just that Jesus cast out another demon. They've already seen that. They're marveling at the fact that he cast out a demon from someone who was mute, which they felt like was an impossibility for anyone to do. Now, I want you to notice the three responses here, because that's really what I want us to focus on. Jesus does this miracle. They're, um, you know, look at that. They see it's definitely something miraculous. And the first response we have is just from the multitude. There's a huge crowd of people watching there, and we're told that they marvel. 
They marvel at what Jesus is able to do. He's able to take this mute man who's demon-possessed, and he's able to cast this demon out of this man. And so this multitude, they're marveling at Jesus. They have this sense of awe, this sense of wonder at what Jesus was able to do. And this is a common response that we see in our day and age when God does something miraculous, when God reveals himself, when God moves in a person's life. There's often this response of, they marvel. They're in awe. They're kind of overwhelmed at how amazing and powerful and great God is. But, you know, for many, that's all it is. It stops there. And you know what? Marveling doesn't bring equal salvation. You can marvel all you want. You can say, wow, this is so amazing. I can't believe God has, has the ability to do this. But if it stops there and you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't believe in him, you're not saved. Now, marveling is a great starting point. When God gets someone to marvel, when they're looking at him in this awe and wonder, usually, I'm sure for all of us, there was a time where we finally looked and saw Jesus for who he was. We marveled at what he did for us, and it led to the next step, which was we accepted him as our Savior. So marveling is a good starting point. It's a good thing that we see, but we shouldn't get overexcited with that. We should just utilize that as an opportunity to communicate the gospel, to help people say, hey, yes, this is God. This is an all-powerful God who loves you, who died for, on the cross for your sin, and you need to believe in him. You need to accept him. So Jesus demonstrates his miraculous power by casting out this demon out of this mute man, and the first response he receives is, is a good one. People are marveling. They're in awe. They're, they're just, wow, look at Jesus. Here he goes again doing another amazing thing. But you know, not everyone responded positively. And we've seen that through Jesus' life. There's another group. We're not told who they are. Most likely they're the Pharisees. And notice what they said. They said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebub is a name that many Jews in Jesus' day used to describe Satan. So ultimately they're saying he casts out this demon by the ruler of the demons who is Satan. Satan is the one who has given Jesus the power to cast this demon out. This group didn't marvel, but notice what they do. They can't deny the fact that this man was demon-possessed and he's no longer demon-possessed. They can't deny the fact that this man has been released of his demon possession and that Jesus was the one who did it. So they can't deny the fact of what happened, so they're going to deny the source. They're going to say, you know what, the source is not God, it's Satan. God did not empower Jesus to cast this demon out. Satan empowered Jesus to cast this demon out. Now, the second group, they do what so often people do today. We can't deny the fact. Let's go for the source. Let's try to corrupt the source. Let's try to change things. They claim the only reason Jesus was able to do this miracle is he's empowered by Satan. You know, when people are open to who Jesus is, they start to see what Jesus has done, they often respond to, wow, he's, they, they marvel. But you know what you find? When people are closed, when they don't want to be open to anything about Jesus or who Jesus is, instead of marveling at a clear miracle, instead of marveling at clearly what God is and what he's demonstrated to them, they're closed. And instead of accepting the facts that are just blatantly obvious right in front of them, they want to deny those facts, they want to deny who Jesus is, and they want to try in some way, shape, or form, explain it away. Try to do something to claim that Jesus is not God. I'm sure a lot of you have experienced this when you've shared with people. 
Maybe you share the evidence of the Bible, you share the evidence of who Jesus is, the evidence that's back up the things that we know in Scripture, and, and there's just this constant, you know, oh, well, I'm just not going to believe it. It doesn't matter how much evidence, it doesn't matter how clear it is, it doesn't matter how logically it is, it doesn't matter how many facts are there. They're always trying just to sidestep the facts and dismiss it in some way, shape, or form so that they don't have to believe Jesus is God. You know, and it's interesting to me that when you see a lot of these people do this, oftentimes they come up with very foolish arguments. And that's what we see here with this group. The argument that they bring against Jesus is actually quite foolish. Well, you just cast out a demon out of this man, and they say, oh, that's not from God. You do it with the power of Satan. The ruler of the demons has given you the power to cast out a demon. Now, I want you to think about that logic for a moment. Jesus is going to, in a minute... Share why that's a foolish claim. I'm sure if you think about it for a moment, you can probably understand why it's a foolish claim as well. But before we look at why it's a foolish claim, because Jesus is going to respond, let's see what the third group does, how they respond to Jesus' miracle. The third group responds to Jesus' miracle, we're told, by testing him. You know, there are a lot of people who wanted to test Jesus throughout his ministry. And each time we see this, this isn't some, I'm a seeker, I'm really open, you know, I want to know and I'm just giving you a test to prove to me. It's always this negative, we're trying to do something to just really disprove who you are, get you in a catch-22. And we see kind of a similar type of heart here from these people who are coming to test him. Notice what they say. They sought from him a sign from heaven. Now think about that for a moment. These people just see Jesus do this amazing miracle in front of them, and they come to him and they test him, and they say, you know what, we want you to show us a sign from heaven. Now, this is kind of ironic, because Jesus just did something that they believed was impossible. Jesus did what only God could do. And after seeing this amazing miracle, they say, you know what, we need you to show us a sign from heaven to prove to us that you're God. Now, you know, if Jesus was telling people he was God and he hadn't done any miracles, he was just saying, I'm God, I'm God, he didn't do anything to prove it, you know, I can understand someone saying, you know what, show us a sign from heaven that you are who you claim to be. You're just telling us this and we don't see anything to prove it, so show us a sign. I can understand that if all Jesus was doing was saying, I'm God. But that's not what he did. Throughout his ministry, he's constantly showing sign after sign after sign, and they just saw a powerful sign right in front of them, he just... Uh, cast out a demon out of a mute man, which they felt was something that was completely impossible. So when they ask to see a sign, there's a sense in which, you know what, no sign from heaven, no sign from Jesus is going to convince them to believe he is who he claims to be. You know, we're in a generation where a lot of the church world, a lot of people, they're always seeking signs and wonders. We want to see signs and wonders and signs and wonders. And I find interesting that reality because within the scriptures, we see a common pattern of people who see this amazing sign, and instead of responding the way they should have, I've seen it, now I believe, they respond like this group does. Now, if you remember... You know, there was probably about 20,000 people. We're told that there was 5,000 men plus women and children, and they're all out there. There's nothing to eat. Jesus has five loaves of bread and two fish. What does he do? He miraculously provides food for all of those people. Now, I want you to picture being there. Imagine you're sitting there in that wilderness. You're hungry, and you see this little amount of food, and Jesus just keeps multiplying it. And you see thousands of people around you, and they keep getting fed, and it's this amazing miracle, and you've experienced it, and you've actually partaken of it. And I want you to know what this group says right after that happens, because you would think, man, 
They understand who Jesus is. They want to follow him. They want to believe in him. But the Gospel of John tells us something that is just quite fascinating about this group. It says in John 6.30, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? This is right after Jesus just feeds over probably 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And they had the audacity to say, what will you perform then that we may see and believe you? What work will you do? Really? Uh, I just did a miracle that no one could ever do unless they were God. And you're going to come to me and say, show us a sign? Prove to us that you're God? What are you going to do that is going to demonstrate that? Uh, Didn't I just demonstrate it just now? Didn't I just show you just now who I am? This third group sees this miraculous sign from Jesus, and they just say, I want to see another. And we see that so often where people are really seeking signs, not seeking Jesus. They're not really open to Jesus. They just want another sign. And when they see that sign, they want a new one. And when they see that sign, they want another. And when they see that, they want another. And they're never really open to the source of the signs, the source of the one who's doing it, Jesus Christ. And so they don't accept him. And sadly, many of those groups see signs that aren't from God. They're supernatural works of the enemy, and he demonstrates himself as well, and they see that kind of stuff, and they get sidetracked, and they never really find the one that they should be seeking. It's a very common response we see today when it comes to Jesus. You know, I think a lot of people claim that if Jesus would just show me a sign, I'd believe in him. I don't know, maybe you were one of those people at one point in time, you probably have heard someone say that or know someone that said, you know what, if Jesus would just show somehow, just miraculously show me a sign, then I'd believe in him. Or you know what, you see it with people who are in a desperate situation, maybe a loved one's dying or something, you know, if Jesus would heal this person, or if Jesus would do this or that, then I'd give my life to him, then i believe in them. And they make this bold statement of God, if you will intervene on my behalf here in this situation, then I'll believe in you. If you show yourself to be true, you show yourself to be powerful, I'll do this. But oftentimes it's not the case. I remember seeing this as a younger boy. My dad's a pastor, and there was a man who came to our house. He wasn't a Christian. His wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She only had a few months left to live. And he said, Pastor, will you please pray for my wife? Pray that she will be healed. I will come to church every single week. I will serve the Lord with my life. I just want my wife back. And a few weeks later, this man comes back to our house rejoicing. My wife's been healed. They've tested her. There's nothing left. I can't believe this is so amazing. This is such a miracle. And my dad says, so we'll see you at church on Sunday, right? He says, you know, I'm not sure God's proved himself to me that he really is real. And we never saw him again. But there's a sense in which, oh, in desperation, Lord, do something for me, and truly I'll believe in who you are. But that's not really the case. Lord, I just want something from you. I'm not really seeking you. I'm not really wanting to actually believe in you. I just want you to give something to me. And once the sign and the wonder is done and I have the blessing of it, then I'm just going to kind of forget about those commitments and those thoughts that I made before this. These people are really just seeking for signs, not really for Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us, if we truly seek for Jesus, we will find him. Seek and you will find He's not trying to hide. He wants people to find him. Those who say, oh, I'm truly seeking and I'm just looking for sign after sign. Well, you're not seeking Jesus, you're seeking signs. Because if you're seeking Jesus, you will find him. He will reveal himself to you. So when Jesus does this miracle by casting out a demon, he has these Three different responses. The first, the positive. They marvel. They're in awe of Jesus' power. The second is a negative. Oh, the only power that you have comes from Satan. You cast out this demon by the power of Satan. 
And the third one says, well, show us a new sign that we might believe, that we might know who you really are. Prove to us that you're God. Give us another sign. Well, Jesus doesn't respond to those who marvel, but he does respond to the two groups who have a negative response to what he's done. And I want us to note those because I think we can learn a bit from them. And first, Jesus is going to respond to this group who says, you know what, your power comes from Satan. It's the only reason you can cast out demons is because Satan empowers you to cast out demons. Well, Jesus has something to say to them. Verse 17, starting there, says this. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus starts off responding to this group that claims, you know what, your power comes from Beelzebub, or Satan, the ruler of the demons. That's the only reason that you have any power to cast out demons. And as I already noted, that was a foolish and illogical argument. And Jesus is going to show them why that's a silly argument to make. And he gives two illustrations to help them see the foolishness of their response. The first illustration that Jesus gives, he says, you know what, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. The Jews knew that if a kingdom was divided against itself, then it would be destroyed. Kingdoms survive by unifying together, by working together. If they're divided against one another, they're ultimately going to implode. So whenever they became divided, it was only a matter of time before they were destroyed. Second, Jesus used another illustration. He says, a house divided against a house falls. From a structural standpoint, literally, a house divided against itself will fall, but also in the family units. If the family is divided against itself, and ultimately, as you probably have seen so often with families like that, they crumble, they fall. Now, Jesus uses this illustration to make a point. He's saying, you know what, if Satan is ultimately divided against himself because he's empowering me to cast out demons who are part of his kingdom, how can his kingdom stand? Just like... How does a normal kingdom stand if it's divided? How does a house stand if it's divided? It's illogical to make that statement. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus is making this point. Your claim that I cast out demons by the power of Satan is just so foolish because guess what demons do? They work alongside of Satan. They're a part of his kingdom. Why would he empower me to cast out someone that they're empowering and control over because it would just destroy his kingdom? It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense that Satan would empower me to destroy his own kingdom. But Jesus isn't done there. He says, you know what? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub or by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? The reality is the Jews had people who were casting out demons. And obviously those Jews would say they're casting them out by the power of God. He's saying, well, you're saying that I'm only able to do it by the power of Satan. How illogical to say they do it by the power of God, I do it by the power of Satan, because obviously Satan wouldn't empower anyone to do that. 
But Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter when he says, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, Jesus is bringing the important point here. If I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, with the power of God, it reveals something very important, Then you know what it reveals. It reveals that I am God. It reveals that I have the power of God. It reveals that I am the Messiah. And that's why you want to deny this. You don't believe that I'm the Messiah. You don't believe that I'm God. And so you have to try to deny the source of which I have to do this. But if I am empowered by God, it reveals that I am God. And now you guys have to make a choice as to what you're going to believe. And this is really the problem, and this is why most commentators believe that this group is the Pharisees, because they don't believe Jesus is God, they don't want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and now they're faced with another miraculous thing that just shines and cries out, here's God standing in front of me, and they say, no, 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 I can't deny the fact of the miracle, but I will deny the source. That's not from God, that's from Satan. You know, and I'm saddened when I see this, but I'm saddened by the reality that this happens so often today that people will take a very foolish and illogical stance in order to try and disprove God because ultimately that's what you have to do. Psalm 14.1 tells us something that is good to remember. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You start listening to people who try to deny the existence of God. And I'm not even just talking about going into Jesus and things. Just to deny the existence of an all-powerful creator, an intelligent designer. I mean, the arguments get more and more foolish, but then you come back to the scripture and you realize, you know what? When you come to a point where you're not willing to accept that there's a God, regardless of what the evidence says, at the end of the day, there's no way you're going to go down that road, then you really have to come to some very foolish conclusions. And that's what we see so much with the world today, because they don't want a God. They don't want to be answerable to anyone. They don't want to have to say, you know what, there's a standard in which I have to follow. There's someone who's going to judge my sin. No, 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 I want to be answerable only to one person, that's me. And so there is no God, and that's what I want to believe. But the problem is, just like with these, who are denying a clear miracle, saying, well, Jesus... We can't deny the miracle, we're going to deny the source. So many today is, you know, we're going to ultimately just deny the evidence and we're going to claim this, that, and the next thing. And sadly, we see some very foolish, foolish things that people do in order to deny the reality and the evidence that we have, which is overwhelming for creation, for God, for Jesus, for the resurrection. Well, Jesus goes on to give another illustration to make a point to this group who claims that his power comes from Satan. Verse 21 says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus gives us an illustration of this strong man who is guarding his palace and all his treasure. He says, you know what, when that strong man's there, hey, all his stuff is safe because he's strong enough to handle whatever comes his way, except when someone who is stronger than he comes and then overtakes him and overpowers him and does this. Now, through this illustration, Jesus is revealing that ultimately he is the stronger man and Satan is the strong man. Satan's a strong man, But yet Jesus is the one who's even stronger than he who comes and disarms him. Notice he takes from him his armor, which he trusted, and divides his spoils. I love this because Satan, you know, didn't just get defeated by Jesus. He was also disarmed. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says, 
Having disarmed principalities and powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, speaking of the cross. Something I think is important for us to understand is Satan is not equal in power to God. So often we have this concept of here we have the powerful God on one side who's good, and then we have the powerful Satan who's bad on the other side, and they're combating against one another, and they're pretty much equal. There's the villain and there's the good. No. Satan is created by God. He's an angel who has fallen. He's evil. He's sinful. But there's no comparison in power. God created him. There's no power comparison there. God can take out Satan and has overcome him. There's no issue there at all. There's no strength that Satan has over God. Now, we're saying that Satan is stronger than you and I. And so that's something that we need to recognize is that, you know what, if we try to fight him on our own, in our own strength, and our own power, we will lose. But, you know, we don't need to fear Satan. 1 John 4, 4 says, You are of God, little children, have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The he who is in us is the Holy Spirit. Once we accept God, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, He who is in us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, and Satan. And because of that, we don't need to fear Satan, because he's been defeated. God's stronger. The power that's in us is stronger than him. So when we rely upon the Lord Jesus, we can overcome anything that Satan brings against us. But notice something else Jesus says in verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You know, there's something that's interesting that Jesus brings up several times, and he's ultimately saying, you know what? Every person is either in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Satan. There's no neutral ground. And there's such a, a concept today where people just, they just want to kind of be in their own little ground. You know, well, I'm, I'm not for God, for sure. And they want to say, well, and I'm not for Satan. I'm just kind of for myself. I'm kind of in this neutral area, in this neutral ground. But Jesus is making very clear, no, there's only two kingdoms. There's his and there's Satan's. You're either a part of one or the other. There's no neutral place. There's no neutral ground. If you're for Jesus, you're a part of his kingdom. If you're against Jesus, guess what? It's not that you're just against him and you're in your own little kingdom. He's saying, no, you go to the only other kingdom there is. You're ultimately in Satan's kingdom, who also is against Jesus. Jesus gives an illustration to help that, you know what? There really is no neutral ground. Notice what he says in verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Jesus shares an illustration kind of interesting because he just cast the demon out of an individual and he's using this as now his illustration for that. And he says, you know what? When someone has a demon cast out of them, something happens. They're now cleansed of that demon. But, you know, he says, you know, this, this spirit who's been cast out, he goes away and he comes back to the same person and he finds that they're just swept clean but there's nothing inside of them. And so he goes and gets seven other spirits and they all indwell this person, and that person's even worse off than he was before he had the initial demon cast out of him. The picture here that Jesus is trying to paint for us is a picture that really someone who's trying to be neutral. They say that they're not for Satan. They also say they're not for Jesus. 
But the reality is, you know, they have this demon, re, you know, leashed from them, cast out of them, but they never go and get filled with the Holy Spirit. They never go and accept Jesus. And so, you know, yeah, the demon's gone, and they think, oh, I'm in this great place now. I'm not demon-possessed anymore, but they're not led to now. I'm going to now choose Jesus. I'm now going to be a part of his kingdom. They just kind of try to stay neutral. And guess what happens? The demon just comes back and dwells them again, because the reality is they're still a part of that kingdom until they come and accept Jesus Christ. The heart of man has a vacuum-like nature, and it has to be filled. It's either going to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, or it's going to be filled with something else that's definitely not of God. The only way someone can be completely delivered from Satan is if they accept the Holy Spirit of God who indwells them and hinders what Satan would try to do. You know, I think there are a lot of people today who think, you know what, I'm not against Jesus, and they even compliment him. He was a great teacher. He was an amazing prophet like Muhammad. You know what, he was Lucifer's brother, and when they say that, they're thinking that they're saying something very nice. He was wonderful in this way, that way, or another. You know, he was a wonderful leader. He was a wonderful historical character. They say nice things about him, and they think, I can be neutral in this. I'm going to say a nice thing about Jesus, and therefore, you know, I'm not really totally against him, but I'm not for him either. So I'm not going to accept him. I'm not going to believe the claim that he's God, but I will claim that there's something good about him. But Jesus is making very clear, you're either for me or against me. You either accept me for who I am, that is God, you ask for forgiveness of your sins, and you believe in me, because if you don't do that, then you rejected me. And you can say all the nice things you want about me, but at the end of the day, if you don't believe that I am who I claim to be God, then you're against me. Now, while Jesus is responding to this group, it's interesting because this woman shouts out something to him, and notice what she says to him in verse 27. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. As Jesus is sharing and he's talking about, you know what, you have to make a choice. There's no neutral ground. If you're for me, great. Choose to follow me and believe in me. Because if you don't, you're against me. And this woman shouts out, Oh, blessed is the woman who nursed you. Ultimately, blessed is your mother. And Jesus said, you know what, who's even more blessed than my mom? Those who listen to the word of God and keep it. You know, Jesus has said this many times, and we see when his family came, and they said, your family's here. And he says, my family are those who do the word of God. Just what Jesus said, you know, you want to be really blessed? Believe what I have to say and actually put it into practice. And this is so telling for the, the crowd that's there, because they, they won't believe and they won't do Believe who I am. I've shown you all the signs that you need. Believe who I am. Believe that I am God. Accept me for who I am, that I am the Messiah, and follow me. That's what really is going to make you blessed. Oh, your mother's so blessed. Well, you could be more blessed if you would follow me. Now Jesus is going to respond to the group that says, show us a sign. So first, the group that says, oh, your power only comes from Satan. He shows how illogical that is, how foolish that is, and that the fact that they need to make a choice. You're either going to follow me and be for me, or you're against me. And now he's going to deal with this group that says, well, you know, why don't you show us ultimately another sign? That sign that you just did isn't good enough. Verse 29. And while the crowds were quickly gathering together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. 
The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus calls a group that seeks after a sign an evil generation. And as we're going to see as we look at these verses, Jesus isn't saying, if you look at for or want a sign, you're evil. That's not the point. What we're seeing here is here's a group of people who have seen sign after sign after sign. They see God himself in flesh in front of them. He just did a miraculous thing in front of them. But guess what? They still won't believe. All these signs are coming, sign after sign after sign, and they're not willing to accept who Jesus is. And so he's saying, you who see all these signs and just want another one aren't willing to accept what you've already seen. You are that evil generation. And he says, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet. You want another sign? There's only going to be one more. Now what does he mean when he says, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet? Well, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually explains himself. Matthew 12, 39 and 40. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign that Jesus is referring to is that I am going to die, and I'm going to be buried for three days, and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. That's the last sign that you guys are going to see. That's the last thing that I'm going to demonstrate to you. And you know what? It's the greatest sign of all. And you know the reality is this group that's just seeking signs, that's probably not going to be good enough for them either. Well, let's show us something else. The resurrection wasn't good enough. Jesus goes on to say, For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now this is interesting because if you know the, jo- the story of Jonah, if you go back, you can read uh, the, the story of Jonah. But God sends Jonah to the Ninevites, and Jonah doesn't want to go, and I won't get into that reality. But at the end of the day, Jonah shows up. He preaches a message. Forty days, God's going to wipe you guys out. That's the sign to them. God just says, Jonah, you go and you preach to them. If they do not turn around and repent for their sins, I'm going to destroy them. And the Ninevites respond by repenting. He's saying, Jonah was sent as a sign from God to the Ninevites, and they responded to that sign by repenting and getting right with God. Jesus says, I am the one who has come, and I am the sign to this generation. The Ninevites only had Jonah. You guys have the Son of God in front of you. The Ninevites responded by repenting, and you guys won't get right, won't believe in me. Jesus goes and gives two examples of people who accepted signs from God not nearly as great as he is. The first example is the Queen of the South. He says, The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, you read about this woman from the south that comes and she visits Solomon and you know she hears about this great wisdom of this man and she's blown away by it and it's something that she turns around and praises the God of Israel for, for it. And you know, she doesn't say, you know what, well, well show me more and maybe I'll believe. Here's a woman that just saw the wisdom of Solomon and was willing to praise the God of Israel because of it. Jesus says, hey, I have come. She was willing to do that. Who's more wise than Solomon? God himself. He's here in front of you. 
and you guys won't believe me. So on Judgment Day, the Queen of the South, she's going to rise up against this generation because she was willing to accept the little that she saw compared to the great that you see. She was willing to accept me and repent, and you would not believe me. The second example that Jesus gives is about the Ninevites. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. I think it's interesting, when Jonah comes to the Ninevites and he preaches this message, 40 days, God's going to come and destroy you. There's not one miracle that Jonah does. All he does is walk through the town. He doesn't even want to be there. He doesn't want to see these people repent. And he just says, 40 days, God's going to destroy you. 40 days, God's going to destroy you. <coughs> just from that alone, I mean, imagine just some random guy coming in and telling you, 40 days, God's going to destroy you. That'd be easy to reject, easy to say, just shut up, you weirdo. You know, I mean, it would be easy just to be like, who is this guy? He didn't do any miraculous things to be like, oh, whoa, this guy's got some power. We should listen to what he has to say. All he does is preach this message. You know what? The Ninevites, just from that little sign, are willing to repent of their sin and get right with God. Jesus comes to earth, God in flesh, stands in front of the generation that's there, does signs and wonders day in and day out. Probably most of that crowd had known someone that Jesus had touched miraculously. They just saw a miracle right in front of them. They say, show us another they say, you know what, in the judgment day, those Ninevites are going to be coming and saying, look, the little that we had, we were willing to repent over this. And you had God in front of you, and you wouldn't repent. You wouldn't believe. That's why he calls them an evil generation. It's interesting to me, the Queen of the South and the Ninevites were both Gentiles. And they both believed in the Messiah and the truth of God. Here's the Jews waiting for the Messiah. He's there in front of them, showing them who he is, and they won't believe people just wanted another sign Jesus says you know what you're an evil generation there's only one more sign you're going to get and that's the sign of my death and my resurrection Jesus is going to give his final response by warning them about inner darkness verse 33 no one when he has lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light the lamp is the body of the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light in which you is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Jesus says, you know what? No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket but on a lampstand that those may come in and see the light. You know, we've seen him use this analogy before when he tells us to be the light of the world. The reality is in your house, you don't hide a light, you don't cover it up or it defeats its purpose and no longer can shine and illuminate and take out the darkness. Just as a lamp should be displayed out in the open so everyone can benefit from its light, the word and work of God should be displayed. But the reality is when Jesus has come to display the light of the world right in front of them, they don't see it. They don't accept it. They don't believe it. Jesus goes on to say, The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Even as a bad eye will make a person blind, there's also a bad heart which makes people spiritually blind. 
And really, that's what this generation is that Jesus is speaking to and so many in our generation today. There is just a spiritual blindness, an unwillingness to recognize no matter what kind of evidence is thrown their way, no matter what kind of miracle is demonstrated to them, there is a blindness that they're not willing to see and accept who Jesus is. You have to be spiritually blind to attribute Jesus' miracles to Satan. You have to be quite ignorant to say, hey, show us a sign from heaven and we'll believe you when I've just seen a miraculous sign right before I said that. The reality is there's a spiritual darkness within you if that's how you respond. When you're in darkness, there's two possible reasons why. There may be no light source or the darkness may be within yourself. And that's what Jesus is saying. You guys are dark. You're spiritually dark. That's your problem. That's why you won't respond to who I am. Remember in the beginning of John, it says... Jesus, ultimately the light, the light has come into the darkness, but the darkness rejects it. And that's what we see here so often in this generation that Jesus is speaking to and ours as well. You know, when we have the light of God's word shining in us, when we see and understand the work of Jesus around us, we won't walk in darkness, we won't be spiritually blind, we have the truth. Instead, we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And, you know... We have that as believers, but we need to recognize we're in a world that doesn't. And that's why he tells us, you know what, you're the light of the world. Go shine for me, because there's a world around you that's in darkness. And it's not that it's dark outside all the time, they're in spiritual darkness. And they need the light of Christ to shine through us so that we might show them who Jesus is, and that hopefully many of them will come to know him, to accept him, to not be like the two responses here of, well... <laughs> That's definitely not Jesus. We're going to say it's something else. Or, you know, just show us something else. Show us another sign, and then we'll believe. But there are those who are out there who are ready. There are those who are marveling. There are those who are open to what God's doing. And as we show them Christ, they say, you know what? I want that. I want to accept that. I want to believe in who he is. So there are three responses to Jesus' miraculous power. One positive, two negative. Positive one, they marvel. I hope some of those people actually came to accept him. But the first negative, they say Jesus cast out demons by the power of demons, Satan. Second negative is, you know what, I know we just saw a sign, but we want to see another. Prove to us your God with another sign. Jesus responds by showing them how foolish and sinful those two negative responses were. You know, when we share with people, we're going to have all three of these responses. And I think it's good to kind of see how Jesus deals with it, because sometimes it's difficult for us. It's easy to deal with the marvelers. They're wondering, they're, they're, wow, this is so great. Oh, really? Let me talk to you more. Let me engage you more. Let me tell you more about Jesus. That's easy. The hard part is when you give all this wonderful evidence and you share all this stuff and then someone just throws it aside, really foolish, comes up with a really foolish thing, their facts are clear, and they just ignore them. Those are the ones where it's kind of difficult. Of, oh, what do we do now? Or, you know what? Someone's seen something super miraculous. God's moved. He's shown them something. And they just say, show us something else. Give us another sign. Well, how do we respond to those types of people? Well, first of all, I would say to those who are trying to just brush aside the facts, in love, I think we need to try to reveal that to them. Well, wait a second. Well, here's some serious facts you have to deal with, some evidence that you have to, you know, take into mind here, and you can't just throw it aside and try to sidestep it, you know, kind of like this group did. And if other people are saying, you know what, just show me something else, show me something else, uh, I think there's something that's a great question to ask. I remember when I started getting into apologetics when I was in Bible college, they said, here's a great question to pose when you're engaging people about 
you know, Christianity, about evidence for the Bible, whatever. You say, what is it I would have to prove to you in order for you to believe in Jesus? <laughs> Throw it to them. You tell me. You give me the criteria. What is it that I would have to prove to you in order for you then to believe in Jesus? And they can throw out anything they want. Well, you know what? You've got to prove to me that the Bible is truly inspired by God. Or you have to prove to me that Jesus is a historical figure that actually existed. Or you have to prove to me that the resurrection is real. Or you have to prove to me, you know, whatever it is that they want to have, they throw that at you. Now, if there are some things that you don't know the answer in, study up. Find the proof. Or bring them to someone who does know it. But what I have found is you get people to say that. Maybe they give you X, Y, and Z, and you deal with that. You bring the evidence for those things. You bring the facts of those things. And what you will often find is right when you're done, they'll say, well, what about, and then they'll throw another thing at you. And you say, well, well, wait a second. We started this with me asking you, what is it that you would need to know in order for you to believe in Jesus? We just dealt with all of that. But now you want something again, something again. So the reality is they just want a new sign, want you to jump through another hoop, another hoop. Why? Because they're not really open. They're not really willing. They're not really seeking the Lord. They're just wanting to throw another thing at you. And so that's a good way to kind of determine where that person's at. And then I wouldn't waste my time much anymore because if you've already given the evidence and they're just like, show me this, show me this. They're not at a place where they're really seeking and open and wanting the evidence to actually be something that they're willing to consider. Jesus told the group that wanted a sign, you're only going to receive the sign of his death and resurrection. And that's the greatest sign that we need to focus on. As we're sharing the gospel, as we're proclaiming, you know, people who want all this evidence, bringing them back to who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, that's the most important thing that we can do. And I think people love to sidetrack us with all sorts of other things of, who was Cain's wife, and can God make a rock bigger than he can lift, and all these silly things, when we need to kind of get away from those questions as quickly as possible, and get back to who Jesus is, what he's done, the heart of the gospel, the fact that person's a sinner, the fact that Jesus loved him enough to give his life for them, and they now have to make a choice. Am I going to reject or believe this? It's a good challenge for us. Jesus always knew the heart of people. We don't always know the heart of people, and so... You know, we got to pray, we got to be led by the Lord, and we just got to do it with love, we got to do it with respect, but I think oftentimes we do have encounters with people where they're like the people here. They're not open, they're not wanting to receive, and so we just need to be very wise in how we do that.